the revolution. The revolution that tore apart Catholic Southern Europe from Protestant Northern Europe, reshaping the religious and political landscape of, of Germany in particular, but all European states. That revolution left behind a fair number of people. Luther, Zwingli, John Calvin is only 16 years old when we begin our story, but he'll be arriving on the scene soon. All of these form powerful states of wealthy princes and wealthy merchants around them, relatively rapidly. People who had a vested interest in breaking away religiously from Rome. The year 1527 sees Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, sack and plunder no other than the Vatican City in Rome. These conflicts, these religious conflicts, immediately play into political conflicts. And to separate them is a little bit of a modern anachronism is to impose our own understanding of how the world works at a time when all of those religious, political, and economic structures were one big ball of wax. Between the Protestants in the Northeast and the Catholics in the Southwest lie thousands of disaffected, unengaged people who find themselves no more interested in jumping in bed with the local lords and merchants than they are playing ball with the old structures of the Roman Empire. People who are fed up with the entire ball of wax. But very quickly... Because these Anabaptists have chosen to withdraw from the systems around them, separate themselves off, and to preach loudly in the streets against them, violence comes upon them. And very quickly, within the first few years, the Anabaptist community, although it still hardly knows itself what it stands for or who it is, is forced to answer the question, What do you do when they kill you? It's not the question we like to ask. We like to ask, when we look at, when we ask the question of violence, we like to ask, who killed whom first? Who's on the right side of this fight? Presumably, whoever didn't start it, right? Whoever started it is the bad guy. Whoever is responding to defend themselves is the good guy. And so the question of violence is just figuring out who started it. Right. But of course, the answer to that one always depends on which it you're talking about. Did it start with the drowning of Felix Mans, the first Anabaptist to be murdered by the government? Or did it start before that with the violence of the German peasant rebellion, in which case the Anabaptists are the bad guys and the local lords are just trying to keep the peace? Or did the German Peasant Rebellion start as a reaction to some unnamed violence we don't know in the history books? A grandparent starved to death by overly heavy taxation? Or a child crushed by a carriage wheel? 
It's like the conflict in Israel-Palestine. We always want to know who started it. When did the conflict begin? Because then we can feel like we have established who's the good guy, who's the defender, and who's the aggressor. We go back in history, we examine different acts of violence, and we judge between them. We say, oh, nobody died in that incident. But a whole community was forced off their property, says the other side. Or, oh, only a few people were killed that time, but it sparked a huge violent backlash, says the opposition. Which is why I don't like the question, who started it, when it comes to violence. And I think when we ask that question, we have missed something crucial. Because... The more you dig through the histories of these conflicts, the more you come to feel that nobody started it. And everybody did. Each time a path of violence was chosen, it started again. My friends, the scriptures teach us that the evil started it. Call it Satan. Call it the ugly side of human nature. Call it whatever you want. But the root of killing and deceit aren't to be found in finding the initial act in history. They are to be found in the human heart. And that root is exposed and examined when instead of asking who started it, we ask, what do you do when they kill you? All of the Anabaptist movement was obsessed with Scripture. In it, they found a simpler way of being faithful, a clear guide for living rightly with God and with one another that gave them the authority, that gave them the freedom to worship and live freed from the structures that had so dominated their lives, the structures of church, of government, and of economy. But a significant part of the movement, as part of their revolutionary fervor, was also in love with prophecy and ecstatic preaching. Their authority did not just come from scripture, but came from these charismatic leaders who would call forth these dramatic events. The kinds of preachers who predicted the end of the world, the coming of God's kingdom and power, the reshaping of all humanity starting with, and among the most popular, this guy in Strasbourg. You don't need to know his name. It's Melchior Hoffman. But know that he was one in a string of people who I imagine having the same eyes and beard that that guy does. (laughs) Wild. Violent. They did not start off violent. They started off as people preaching ecstatic hope. A hope of a world where they could practice religion freely. Hope of a world where everyone would share and everyone would have enough and no one would be left to starve. Hope in the Magnificat, in all of the finest promises of scriptures and those hopes then being brought into their lives, into their times through their prophecies. The kingdom will come. God's kingdom is going to arrive here in the next ten years in the city of Strasbourg, says Melchior Hoffman. But then that guy died. 
And Strasbourg wasn't looking very happening. Munster, meanwhile, just down the road, was run by guilds, not by lords. And the guilds were much more tolerant of all faiths because they were trying to make themselves into a hub of commerce. And so if you're a merchant selling stuff, they didn't care what you thought. Come on in, bring your money. The preachers that followed this guy, who I imagine all have the same eyes and the same beard, found that tolerance in Munster really exciting. Finally, the prophecies were coming true. And they preached and proclaimed that rebaptism will be accepted. There will be no consequences from on high. Not a hair on the head of these new Christians will be touched because of their ecstatic visions of a God's coming kingdom. The new Jerusalem wouldn't be founded in Strasbourg. It would be founded in Munster. But it was still here. And so they flocked there by the thousands, filling the town with Anabaptists overnight. When the predictions and prophecies turned out to be wrong, and Anabaptists all throughout this part of the world did face immediate persecution as soon as they came out and publicly proclaimed themselves, when it turned out that the New Jerusalem didn't just appear overnight, Then the Anabaptists of Munster decided to force it. It wasn't going to happen. They were going to make it happen. They published pamphlets that first denouncing Catholicism from a radical Lutheran perspective, as Lutheranism was strong in town, but soon starting to proclaim that the Bible called for the absolute equality of man in all matters, including the distribution of wealth. The pamphlets, which were distributed throughout northern Germany from Münster, successfully called upon the poor of the region to join the citizens of Münster to share the wealth of the town and benefit spiritually from being the elect of heaven. Bet you didn't know that the evangelicals and the communists were in bed all along. One in the same cause right from the get-go. But there it is. To share the wealth of the town and benefit spiritually from being the elect of heaven. And there's the tragedy of Munster. Because in case you haven't figured it out, the one place of tolerance they found, to which they flocked, which became their cultural center, their one safe haven, was their grave. The histories have a lot to say about what happened in Munster, about how their leaders went crazy, and having declared the city to be a new Jerusalem, making rebaptism compulsory, and having smashed all the statues and religious icons in the cathedrals and monasteries throughout the city, they then proceeded to do away with trials and execute people in the streets. When the army came and laid siege, the revolutionary leader, one John of Leiden, believing himself to be another Gideon, led 12 men out the gates to defeat the entire Catholic army, believing God would fight for them. And he was killed, his head put on a spear, and some parts nailed to the outside gates of the city. Yeah, those parts. And then, when the city was taken, the leaders were hanged by cages on this very cathedral, cages that are visible to this day. 
It's from the people who did the hanging and the nailing that we know so much. So things perhaps weren't quite as evil or crazy inside the town of Munster during the siege as we've been told, but it's impossible to know because we don't have any other information either. Except that we do know that the body of Anabaptists on the outside, those who did not follow the path of violence in Munster, didn't have much good to say about it either. It doesn't, the, the, the fact that what we know is certainly the result of propaganda does not make what the Anabaptists did at Munster okay. And as we'll go on to see, Munster wasn't the only place where Anabaptists offered violence. But what happened there, I think, stripped of some of the propaganda, can help us see that these revolutionaries weren't so off the rails crazy. And that perhaps what happened in Munster can be compared to other movements, other religious rebellions. So today I want to very briefly talk about a story of three what I'm calling religious rebellions. Similar in many ways to all rebellions, all revolts, which inevitably carry an idealistic, almost religious component to them. But carrying some more specific connotations as well. These three religious rebellions, of which Munster was one, were back to the basics religious revivalism, leaning on text and rejecting the traditional figures of authority. The rejection of the religious system was accompanied by and inherently linked with a rejection of the economic and political system. So far, so good. But how that religious revival and political rebellion takes place in all three cases, is divided. The community is split over the question of violence. What do you do when they kill you? Split into two wings who share the same goals and the same vision often, but whose means couldn't be more distinct. The violent wing, characterized by charismatic leaders Bold prophecies. This is how people, usually men, are rallied to fight and kill, is they listen to someone who is loud, and they focus on something that is, seems marvelous and is in the near future, the coming victory. So prophetic visions and charismatic leaders always seem to be part of the violent party. Their priorities are the overthrow of the government, the destruction of the images and icons of the old regime, and oftentimes the imposition of archaic law as they seize power and they take their back-to-the-basics mentality of religion and apply it to law as well. On the other hand, you have the peace camp, based not so much on leadership as on the collective will of a believing people, the quietists the class traitors, as Marx called them. People who read Romans 13, that no authority is established but that established by God, 
Give what you owe, including taxes. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We can see how this model of the religious rebellion fits Munster and the Peasants' Rebellion, actually, that that came before it, the Peasants' Rebellion that was uh, in southern Germany, and even the bandits up in the Netherlands where Menno Simon's own brother was running around robbing people, not to make himself rich, but because he understood it as being the violence as being the tool to build God's kingdom. But this model of the religious rebellion with two deeply interconnected but radically different wings also applies to none other than first century Judea and the very origins of our faith in Christ. Jesus existed and led at a time before the two sides were divided. In case we modern-day Mennonites wanted to make ourselves too comfortable with the Jesus movement, let us remember that it included a zealot. Zealots who were famous for loving, above all things, smashing idols and stabbing Roman politicians. Now, whether that was actually Simon the Zealot's priorities, we don't know. But we do know that that movement was, at least in some part, part of Jesus' support. Part of the people who were attracted to him, who followed him, and who, when he came into Jerusalem and took over the temple, like any good revolutionary should, cheered him at the top of their lungs. At that moment, standing at the gates of the temple, purging it, cleansing it, reshaping it in his own back-to-the-basics religious idea, idea, bringing economic and political reform, which one did Jesus look more like? A Mennonite or a Munsterite? But at that crucial moment, at the flashpoint when the war was about to start, Jesus answered the question, what do you do when they kill you? In a way, it's never been answered before or since. Jesus, with all the power in Judea, all the power in the world, doesn't forge his kingdom in blood. And the community that lived on in his name, the community that was born at the moment of the crucifixion and resurrection, clearly opposed the rising violence of their times from both sides, from Judean and Greco-Roman alike. Is this comparison useful? Is there, are there not some significant differences between the moment at Munster and the moment in Judea? Of course there are significant differences. And of course the list of things that I put forth in my religious rebellions characteristics is cherry-picked a little bit. It's going to ignore a lot of those differences. And yet, the similarities are so salient that I wondered if they might even be predictive. Because the third religious rebellion that I want to highlight today is one in our times, in 21st century South Asia. The Taliban 
smashed religious icons. The Taliban are a back-to-the-basics religious revival based on focusing on the text and rejecting the traditional layers of authority. They preach economic and political revolution, and they enforce archaic laws. In many ways, they line up point by point with the violent wing of a religious rebellion, as we have seen it in Munster and as we saw it in the Roman Jewish wars. But on the other hand, where's the, where's the other side? Where's the community-oriented, apolitical, quietist movement that rejects the low tool of violence to bringing about, for bringing about the high aim of God's kingdom? Where are the crazy prophecies leading up to a huge violent clash? Where's the rest of the picture? Is Islam simply different enough and the 21st century different enough that really we're not talking about the same thing? Here's why I think my religious rebellions theory holds water. Because it prompted me to go looking for those things in South Asian revivalist Islam, in groups associated with the Taliban, and I found them. In the war party among the Taliban, there are prophecies about what is called Ghazwa-e-Hind, the battle for India. And according to a very commonly spoken about hadith, which is a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, an army with black flags will emerge from Central Asia to help the Mahdi, the Messiah, establish his caliphate at Mecca. The Taliban and now ISIS, which is filling in in those areas, sees itself in prophetic, apocalyptic terms. And our view from the outside which regards them as relatively uh, simple or bloodless uh, people who are dedicated simply to, to prayer and repetition of an ancient book, misses out on a whole world of imagery, vision, and apocalyptic prophecy. And on the other side, I found the camp of peace in that movement. It's called the Tabligi Jamaat, which has been railed against by Western authorities, particularly the French government, as the gateway to the Taliban. With somewhere between 12 million and 150 million followers, we don't exactly know, throughout Pakistan and India, but also in South Africa, England and France, they're currently trying to construct the largest mosque in the world in London. The Tabligi Jamaat are conservative, text-based, revivalist Muslims who see themselves not as needing to evangelize the world, but as needing to return Islam to its true roots with remarkably progressive ideas about equality, wealth, and as with most desperate religious revival movements, the empowerment of women to speak. This gateway to the Taliban is so appealing because it carries with it many of the strongest and most healthy and wholesome 
parts of the rebel of the rebellion against the systems that have dominated and hurt people throughout India and Pakistan and Afghanistan but without the tool of violence in hand and the relationship between the Taliban ISIS and Tablighi Jamaat is messy siblings in one camp and and in the other constant communication and arguments back and forth engagement they are not cleanly separable as of this moment the judgment of history has not yet been passed between the camp of war and the camp of peace in this revivalist movement in south asia but i'll make a guess I'm going to go ahead and go on the record here my friends because truly I tell you those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We call these violent wings of the revolutions crazy, evil. And then we hold up the peaceful wings of the revolution as somehow completely separate and distinct. these revolutionaries who commit to violence aren't crazy and the scariest part about them is that they are so close to being good their cry against injustice is heard by god and god yearns for them to do right and flourish but they have answered the question what do you do when they kill you in a way other than the answer of Christ Jesus our lord who chose to die on a cross rather than initiate a kingdom of blood there are a thousand different answers to the question what do you do when they kill you proportionate response eye for an eye open warfare go whole hog asymmetric terrorist response you don't dare oppose the powers that be directly so you have to do it in the alleyways and in ways that are that allow you to carry on an asymmetric fight prevention and control shock and awe these are all answers to the question what do you do when they kill you and there is i am here to say in Christ Jesus only one answer to that question and in Christ Jesus is the way the truth and lest we forget it the life anabaptism is not of vital importance in my mind because it is totally unique because we have a story that's utterly unlike everyone else's story and we therefore have the perfect truth No. Anabaptism is important because it is another illustration of God's law of peace. A law that is not unique to us but is totally predictable and frankly quite universal. A law that implies that make that demands of us very difficult decisions. 
and a law that does not abandon us, even as the violence comes and the centuries roll over. Next week, we will be looking at the legacy of what happens after those who live by the sword have died by the sword. What happens to the community left behind, the remnant that has relearned in the harshest way to follow the path of peace? What happens when the community learns to love the peace that has enabled them to survive, learns to orient themselves around it and teach it to their children? Next week will be the story of endurance, of how it is that Movements like our own can survive in the face of ongoing persecution and how it is that, that, and how that passage of time teaches, informs, and shapes them into a tool that God can use in some very surprising ways. When did we stop being revolutionaries? Are we who choose now, chose then, and I pray choose always the house of peace? Does that mean that we stopped being revolutionaries? Or does it mean that we just learned how to dig in for the long haul?